how nail polish makes you fat. Drinking with friends is good for you. Beards are covered in poop. Thinking can make Sugar you as fat. addictive as cocaine. Microwaving Climate change. Plastic. Literally. Sausage. A is dangerous. Junk food in pregnancy leaves children fat. Magnets prove effective for kids. So much of what we hear in the news these days is supposedly backed up by science. The question is, how much of that is science? And how much of it is real, real science. science? Do I sit here? Oh, oh, rad. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast studio. Thank you. How much do we know about our own trash? I thought that obviously the recycled get recycled and then the general waste just gets burned. We asked some grade 11 students and staff members if they know what happens to their trash after they throw it out. Not really. Not really, no. Um, I have an idea, but I've also been told that that idea is wrong. There were some vague references to a mystery island. I think it goes to some kind of island. So the small island where everything's dumped. I think that some of the materials that aren't recycled go to an island off Malaysia somewhere to be landfill. And some mixed beliefs about recycling. I'm assuming that when we put it in the recycling bin, it's being recycled. I've been informed, although I'm not sure if this is true, that usually they just bunch it all together and burn it all rather than actually recycle it. There was more of a consensus when we asked what the main types of our waste might be. That's it. Plastic. What plastics? Um, packaging. Plastic waste, because there are a lot of trash bags lying around in hawker centers. And then probably food. Food waste. Oh, food, definitely. Electronics. E-waste. Chemical waste, maybe? But per person, how much waste do we produce? That question was hard. I mean, I don't know, if, I don't know. I don't think I can, I don't know. I don't know how to quantify it. I would say per day, per person, maybe about a kilo. 50 kilograms per day? Over 500 kilograms, I'd say. What was the number? I think it was 5,000. Obviously, I know the answer to these questions because we looked it up online, but I wanted to see how it looks in real life. So I asked Tim to keep a trash diary for 24 hours. Tim, are you there? I'm here with my trash diary and it's it's glorious. Excellent. Why don't you go ahead and read us uh, what you collected over that 24 hours? Sure. Um, two plastic sachets, some Tim Tam wrappers, two paper bags, 13 paper towels, some more Tim Tam wrappers, six nappies, about 300 grams of human poop, 18 wet wipes, two plastic bags, some wax paper, some fruit peel, three more Tim Tam wrappers, some more human poop, a plastic milk bottle, cardboard box, another plastic Tim Tam packet, a small amount more human poop, coffee sachet. Tim, you do know you didn't have to keep up with your poop as part of this trash diary. That actually is not considered trash. That's something different. Oh, well, that's something that I do every day anyway. Okay. I should add here uh, that I do have also, a two-month-old uh, baby. I'm concerned about the amount of Tim Tams you're consuming. Maybe unhealthy. But they're so delicious. That is true. Okay, if we exclude feces, uh, what are your biggest categories of trash, do you think? Uh, excluding feces, which is obviously the main category, I would say plastic, paper and cardboard, and food waste. Ding, ding, ding. You, sir, are in line with most Singaporeans. Those are the three biggest categories of waste uh, that most people have. How much trash do you estimate that you produced in that 24-hour period? Uh, again, not counting the poo, I would say probably about a kilogram, give or take. Okay. Uh, again, that seems to be in line with the average Singaporean trash production per person. 
Uh, we calculated it out at 360 kilograms a year, so it comes out to a little bit less than a kilogram a day. Um, so well done. Thank you very much. Okay. It feels nice to be average. It does indeed. So after I put it in the chute, where does it go? Excellent question. So most of the waste that's not recycled in Singapore gets incinerated and the ashes get shipped off to a little offshore island where they are buried, presumably forever. Right. And the stuff that doesn't turn into ash turns into CO2 in the air, right? Exactly. So it's released just like burning anything else. So um, I asked you to do some calculations for us. What is the amount of CO2 that's going to be released when that kilogram bag of trash that you produced today is burnt? The amount of CO2 that I would produce by burning my one kilo bag of trash is approximately the same amount of CO2 as leaving an LED light bulb on for six years, uh, watching every single episode of Love Island 150 times, uh, listening to the real science ghost hunt 75,000 times, or this one I was a little bit less sure of, but I put it in anyway. Um, raising 15 chickens from eggs. I, I don't even know what to say, Tim. Thank you so much for keeping the trash diary and for your exceptional mathematical calculations. It certainly wasn't a waste of time. That's getting edited out for sure. <laughs> This month, we bring you two stories of surprising responses to the fallout of our impact on the environment. And we try to figure out how to make a change without going environmental in the process. In our first story, a family goes away for a weekend at the beach and returns to find only a cast iron bell remaining from their former life. Who is to blame? Climate change, of course. And in our second story, we journey into the dark abyss of one man's freezer to see if there is an answer to our climate woes. I'm Judson. And I'm Tim. And this is Real Science. Chapter 1. For Whom the Bell Tolls. Here's Tim. October the 8th, 2017, was just another normal day for Bruce Schaefer. My name is Bruce Schaefer. I live in Northern California, a medium-sized city called Santa Rosa in what used to be called the Redwood Empire. We live in a what we call a subdivision, but what is called in other parts of the world a housing estate. Uh, a number of medium-sized homes for medium-sized people, primarily tradespeople and uh, young professional people live in this neighborhood, which is what we were 30 years ago when we moved here. We raised our two children here and any number of dogs and have friends everywhere in the area and we're pretty at home. Bruce and his wife both happened to be out of town on October the 8th. But on the morning of October the 9th, they woke up and realized that something just wasn't quite right. Both of our mobiles uh, went off shortly after five o'clock and we got several different calls 
the most important of which from our daughter, Jill. We did not, right that moment, find out that our house was in danger, but we found out that there was a conflagration like no one had ever seen before in our vicinity. There was a fire, a big fire. And if you live in California, you know that fires are serious. Fires are a big deal in California. The state motto is keep California green and golden. And so California is green for six months of the year and it's golden for six months of the year. And it's the golden part that burns quite often. But we live in the center of about 3000 houses in this extended housing estate. We are about a mile and a half from the nearest tree. So the idea that our house could have been in any danger was nonsense. But the more calls they got, the more they realized that there was a problem. There was a real problem. And whether it it intimately involved us or not, it was going to involve people that we cared about and things that we cared about. And we'd better get up, get ready. I'm I'm curious as to what, what you could have done. Would, would there have been anything that you could have done if you were there? Nothing. It was a it was a firestorm like Dresden during World War II, um, not caused by um, incendiary bombs, but caused by huge pieces of forest and foliage being drawn up into the air, burning by the tremendous winds that the fire created and so our entire area was bombarded by these 50 and 100 and 200 pounds pieces of burning foliage and it wasn't as though the fire started in a certain direction and then swept into our precinct and began burning houses one by one. It's as though the fire rained from the sky and started a hundred houses at the same time. The winds were horrendous. And just within an hour or two, everything was burning everywhere. And there was just, there was no stopping it. An electrical fault 15 miles away combined with almost hurricane strength winds was burning a vast area, advancing incredibly fast jumping over a six-lane motorway. Which is the motorway and the cleared area there is about a hundred yards wide. It jumped over that as though it wasn't there. And destroying everything in its path except for a couple of houses and a McDonald's. In our particular subdivision there are 1,500 houses in our particular builded units and it it burnt 1,490 of them. Given the scale, ferocity and speed of this fire, and the fact that it was the early hours of the morning, it is perhaps amazing that only 22 people lost their lives. The ones that did were the elderly or those without vehicles to escape in. In Bruce's words, You needed to have a good, a good set of wheels and an inclination to scamper to get out of what was going on there. And, um, because it happened so fast, right? It happened so incredibly fast. Now, if there is something I know about Americans, it's that they like their automobiles. So I asked Bruce about his. 
I had 240 miles on my new pickup truck and it burnt in my uh, driveway. I had a two-year-old car right next to it. It burnt in my driveway. I had my Harley-Davidson motorcycle in the garage and all three of those things were turned into uh, a bit of steel and a river of aluminum that ran down to the gutters and ran down the gutters. There was also a family heirloom of sorts in the house, an old bell that Bruce's mum had bought from a farm sale many decades earlier. It's about 125 pounds in weight. It's what's called, a, it's an 18-inch bell, which is uh, how much it is across the, the bottom, and it has a a clangor inside of it, and it, it makes a hell of a noise when it's rung. And Bruce's mum had formed an attachment to this bell because of a song that was famous at the time. Ramona, I hear the mission bells a calling. And so she had kept it for decades, and then Bruce had inherited it, and it was in that house, in the fire. I moved that bell the eight or ten different places that she lived as she got older and older, and uh, I... I loved my mom, but I hated that bell because it was rusty. I could just barely lift it and I'd have rust stains all over me and it made a mess and it was hard to get in the car. So I had no love for that bell at all. When my wife and I arrived in Santa Rosa the day after the fire, and there was still smoke everywhere, and when we finally, when we finally found our piece of property, which of course was difficult because there were no landmarks anymore. It was just gray ash everywhere. Nothing on our property was over two feet tall, except for the hulks of the two cars. But in the back was the bell just standing in the ashes, standing upright, not a scar or scrape or burn or anything, looking exactly like it had looked every one of those dozen times when I had to move that damn thing from point A to point B. Everyone hates uh, my mom's bell. But after the fire, when it turned out to be the only thing that was left, our only possession that was in the house, that bell is now the honored legacy of our clan. And the kids are at some point going to duel or beat each other up over who gets final possession of that bell. Bruce has lived in California all his life. I wanted to find out if climate change was having an effect. Had these fires increased? Had everything got much more dangerous? My opinion is fires have absolutely increased. There's never been anything in California to compare with the frequency, size, duration, and destructive power of the fires that have happened up and down California for the last 10, 15, 20 years. We have never seen anything like that. And as is so often good, the statistical analysis of it, the work that's been done governmentally, academically, absolutely supports the idea that it is directly driven by climate change. 
Since we first recorded this segment, another round of fires have swept through Northern California. Yeah, that's right. I got an email from Bruce's wife, Juliet, on the 29th of October this year. They'd been in their newly rebuilt house for a month or so. The Kincaid fire was moving in, closer and closer. In the middle of the night, they received text messages from the authorities telling them to evacuate. The fire was even bigger than last time. Most of the neighborhood evacuated, again. Fortunately, this time, firefighters stopped the blaze about four or five miles from their neighbourhood, but it was a terrifying reminder of what could happen, and what did happen just two years earlier. I mean, given that they've gone through this now twice in the last two years, has there been any discussion about maybe not rebuilding and moving somewhere else? Maybe amongst some people, but it's a difficult thing to think about because, you know, people's entire lives are there. You know, they've lived there for so long. Their kids go to school there. They've got their businesses there. They All their friends live there. You know, it's it's at the moment, it's difficult for them to move away from that. I know this is a debate that's been happening in other parts of the country as well, in the southeast and Texas and Louisiana, um, where flooding has caused repeated damage to certain areas. But I think it's difficult for people to make a connection between these things like fires and flooding and climate change. I mean, taking fires, for example, we know that the intensity and frequency is attributable to climate change, but actually the fire itself starts because of a barbecue or an electrical problem, not because of climate change itself. Right. So maybe the new norm will just become, you know, for a lot of people, will just become rebuild, move back into the same area. So I guess the message for us is invest in construction companies. Yeah. All right. Chapter two, one man's trash. Here's Judson. Okay. Hello. Hey. How's it going? All right. Okay. Yeah? Okay. How's that? Yeah, good. Okay, you look nervous. Are you okay? Well, the, the, the earphones are really freaking me out. I don't, I don't know what I just think the earphones are weird. I'm not, I'm not comfortable with the earphones. I mean, I kind of don't care if you're uncomfortable, but, I, you know, I feel, I feel a little bit bad. Um, can you just introduce yourself? Okay, I'm, I'm James. Do you do you want to say anything else about who you are, where you live, what you do? Oh, um, you, you, it depends where you're from. My introduction is just my name, but if you want, um, if you want my life story, that's okay too. Can you please tell me what is in your freezer right now? My freezer is a treasure trove. It's the smorgasbord of our lives, I would say. Where where do I start? I mean, just can you give me just a play by play of uh, what you're seeing right now when you open the freezer? <laughs> We've got, um... James has some of the things you might expect him to have in his freezer, like... Blueberries, peas, chickpeas, green beans, uh, pureed apple, pureed pumpkin... And some more unusual items. Chicken, tiny fish, tiny anchovy fish things for, for Korean dishes. 
Dog donuts. Got some dog donuts in here too. So. But ultimately, we came to the one item that interested me the most. The bag of food waste. Like looks like looks to be maybe eggshells, some sweet potato maybe. The fruit. It's hard to it's hard to to distinguish the. Uh, what is what from the the frozen the frozen matter that it is? So it's quite hard. Most people don't have food waste in their freezers, but we do. Take me back to the beginning. How did how did you come to have a bag of trash in your freezer? Well, actually, the the bag of trash is for environmental purposes. Seoul has a system of trash collection that's very very complicated, but ultimately. So it doesn't decompose, you know, science, biology. So, Seoul's system of trash disposal. In 1995, Seoul introduced what's called a volume-based fee system. Essentially, there's no charge for recycling paper, plastic, or glass. So residents pay for bags, and the cost of the bags is linked directly to the cost of treating the waste. In the early part of the program, food waste was processed by the government and then dumped into the sea. Essentially, the government was spending $600 million a year to treat the food waste. Even treating it, the environmental impact was massive. Walk me through how you guys figured out that this was the best system. The internet told us. This is how other people in Korea also handle their trash, by putting in the... We're not, we're not really sure how many people handle their trash this way. I'd say we might be a minority, but there's other people that do it or did it at some point. I think to better understand Korea's current system for dealing with trash, we need to take a step back into history. So in the 1960s, the average household income in Korea was less than $100 a year. By the 80s, that had risen to $5,500 per year. And in 2015, the average household income was up to $33,000 a year. With that rising income, we see a corresponding rise in waste production. Now, Korea has a really high population, but quite a low area. So all of that waste going into landfills was causing big problems in terms of soil and groundwater pollution, along with odors and insect outbreaks and fires. So let's get back to that bag of trash in the freezer. I asked James what happens to the waste. I, I think it's given to anim, an, as animal feed, is what uh -huh. my understanding is. Or that's what I think. According to some statistics I found, at the moment, 36 tons per month of food waste gets turned into animal feed, which then gets sold and produces $11 million a month of revenue for the government to subsidize the processing and collection costs. The moisture, along with the remaining dry waste that doesn't get turned into animal feed, are used for electricity generation, which apparently accounts for 50 megawatts a day. Now, I need to check with Tim about this, but apparently one megawatt of energy is enough to power a thousand homes. So this is not an insignificant amount of energy that's coming from this food waste. What happens if you just chuck everything out altogether? Supposedly, I think you get fined. Yeah, people tittle-tattle on you. There's a, there's a whole like, network of old, old ladies that, that tell on people. Since 2000, there's been a strict system of fines, apparently up to 800 U.S. dollars, 
And that network of little old ladies that James speaks of is actually legit. Um, the government will give you up to 80% of the fine amount if you report illegal waste disposal activity. You know, I think it's clear that there's a lot to be taken from Korea's approach to waste management. We finished our conversation by talking a little bit about how those social and economic pressures have influenced James's perspective on waste. I think it makes people more aware of the trash that they use and that what they what what they go like what goes into their system rather than just being bags of trash, which I think is a good thing. So you're doing a project? What what, what is it? Oh, uh, Jen, Jen, uh, we we Jenny. Livy's mum's calling. The dog's mum's calling. And a big thanks to James for his help with this episode and to his ongoing commitment to freezing his food waste. Well done, sir. Well done. I mean, I have so many questions after that episode, uh, I guess the most urgent one is probably how is the dog's mother able to use a telephone? In Korea, dogs are very advanced, Tim. Uh, we could do a whole nother segment just on Korean dog life. All right. Stay tuned for that, folks. Uh, I think you might consign my other questions to, to other podcasts as well, but I'd like to know what all those tiny, tiny fish were for. And I'd also like to know what a dog donut is. The tiny fish I can't really address, but the dog donuts, apparently, they're just like human donuts, except for our furry friends. And James's wife uh, runs a business making uh, dog donuts. That is dreamy. Indeed. Okay. Um, well, I've been a little bit obsessed with the dog donuts, and I've been thinking about them ever since I heard about them. So I kind of lost track of the story a little bit. So if you could just give me a, give me a quick overview, give me, give me your thoughts on that. I mean, my biggest takeaway is that Korea made some huge changes to how they handle waste back in the 90s that have had an incredible impact on reducing the amount of food waste um, and putting what food waste that is produced into avenues that produce electricity, produce revenue, produce uh, food for animals. I'm just flabbergasted after going through this that the entire developed world is not getting on board with similar initiatives as far as how they're handling their waste because you know some of the statistics are shocking like landfill waste produces the third most greenhouse gases in the world if it were its own country i mean which, which is crazy so it feels like there's some simple solutions that aren't being taken on board so if you're a if you're a government minister listening to this then judson's your man get at me in the absence of governmental action, though, Judson, is there, is there anything that you think we can do as individuals, or is it just too big a problem? Look, I mean, for me, I think James was accidentally profound in talking about how he's become more aware of what goes in the trash can. I know that's been something that I've been thinking about a lot more since, uh, since we recorded the, that interview and, and since I did research on it. It's just being aware of what you're doing with your food waste, what you're putting in the trash can. And I think being aware of it has made me make different decisions about what I use and how I use things. 
Right, yeah. I, I kind of wrote a little list here of my my kind of priorities after we made this episode, and you can you can switch to sol to fully solar electricity now in Singapore. Uh, I'm trying to take my own containers, take my own plastic bags wherever I whenever I whenever I might you know need to take something away when I go to the supermarket or whatever. And I'm also going to buy some dog donuts. I think that should be first on your list. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, when it comes to sustainability. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's about not thinking like you have to make massive changes, but just do what you can as an individual, whether it's, you know, taking your own shopping bags or, you know, eating dog donuts. You know, do what little you can because it, it all adds up and makes a huge difference. And eat less meat. Am I, am I allowed to say that? this week to James Loft, Bruce and Juliet Schaefer, Simon Dean and June, Adam and Yajur in grade 11 and 12. Music this week is thanks to Patrick Patrikos and Alexander Nakrada. Special thanks as always to Ellie Olchin. You know, every single time she loses her car keys, she has the same guess about where they could be. The small island where everything's jumped. I'm Tim. And I'm Judson. Thanks for listening. And see you next time. <laughs>